One of the, um, I think one of the most difficult things as Christians living in the 21st century here in America and the westernized scientific West is to, is to have a view of God, the Bible, and Jesus and his spirit that, that integrates all of life. This, it, it, is, is, it is very, very difficult um, and yet an, um, a, a huge task for us as, as believers who call ourselves Christians, assuming that you're a Christian, to have a, a, a view of God, head and heart that, that unites or integrates him into everything. And the, the reason that that's difficult is because we tend to think categorically, um, especially in the West, um, where when we think about God or the domain of God, whether we say it or not, this is how we feel, and this is how we often operate. And I'm speaking for myself, too. This is this to see God integrated into every facet of my life. Is I know what I need, and it's one of the reasons that we all should wash ourselves constantly in the Scripture of truth so that we can have our minds formed by His Word. But we tend to think categorically so that, you know, church and ministry, um, youth group, missions, like that's the God stuff. And then when you punch your time card in at work or if, that, if that's what you do or you go into the office or you, you know, write checks for a living, that that's the career stuff, the financial stuff, the work stuff. And then you come home at the end of the day and take your kids to soccer and help them with their homework if you still have kids in the house or you have kids. And, and that's kind of the family stuff. And, and we tend to compartmentalize life that way. It's, this is the God stuff, this is the work stuff, and this is the, this is the family stuff. And, and, we, and we fail to see or believe or operate, maybe that's a better word, operate in a way that understands that God is to be integrated into the whole, that he is the unifying and interpretive center of all of life. And that makes a huge difference when, when we see the world that way. And as I said, we're kind of trained culturally not to think that way because another huge category that our culture kind of forces in on us is the, the, the spiritual versus the, the scientific. And we tend to break it apart um, in our, the way we view the world, whether we consciously are aware of it or not. So that when it comes to things like, like farming, you know, we tend to think, well, we need rain, we need fertilizer, we need good plant seeds, we need the right kind of weather for this all stuff to grow. And like the Bible doesn't, doesn't see the world as purely scientific. Um, and this was driven home to me just this last week. I'm meditating on, on Psalm 65, and it's an, an unexciting part of the psalm, but it just struck me, you know, where the psalmist writes, and he's talking about the Lord, he says, and he's talking about farming and agriculture. He says, you, talking to the Lord, you water its furrows, right? Like furrows in, a, in farmland, you water its furrows, uh, settling its edges, softening it with rain showers, and blessing its growth, like, the, 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 in the, the biblical mindset is to recognize that God is intimately and personally and attentively at work in the saturation of the soil and, and the growth and the blessing. Like, God is doing that. So I think a biblical writer would look at a growing tomato plant and go, wow! Like, this isn't just a physiological cause-effect thing. This is the hands of the Lord are growing these tomatoes, right? It's not just scientific. Or, this is a painful topic for some, but I choose it 
intentionally. The whole issue of infertility is very difficult, and some of us know people or are close to people who struggle with it. And it's a very real thing, and I don't mean to minimize the emotional impact of it. But we tend to think of it as a purely physiological, medical, or scientific issue. Right? Therefore, it can only be fixed by physiological, medical, or scientific solutions. Now, I'm, what I'm saying is not the denial of science or physics. However, the biblical mindset is to integrate God in all things so that David could say in Psalm 139, I was, I was knit together in my mother's womb. Like God was detailed, attentive, personally involved in the formation of my, my little being, my little body. And he says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made, right? That's an integrative view of God in all things. That's like the biblical mindset. Or you take the topic of romance, you know, finding Mr. Right or Mr. Wrong, uh, finding your mate in this world. It's, it's, it's really easy to think, well, that's the domain of eHarmony or Match.com or Cupid, right? And I don't deny that God is a God of means. I have married people who are still married who got together on eHarmony. However, the domain of God bringing people together is his domain. He's at work. In it, and, and instead of trusting in a technology, the use of it's not wrong, but recognizing, like, God, I trust you, that you're involved in the details of life, that you, if you know every star in the heavens, and there's billions upon billions, and you know them by name, and not one is missing, then certainly you know who I should be with, and I'm going to trust in your work, detailed work in the world. That's an integrative view of God, that God is the integrative, interpretive center of the Bible, of people's worldview. Now, what we're talking about here is, I'm going to use a fancy word, um, but it's a good word, and we don't want to always speak at a fifth grade level. Let's just maybe a little more educated in our vocabularies. This is the topic or the truth of divine providence. Divine providence. Um, if you want kind of my loose definition of divine providence, it's simply this. This is, this is supported and taught both implicitly and explicitly all through Scripture. It is the biblical teaching that God, three things here. He sustains, that is, everything that is alive, everything that is, is held up by his power. And he sustains it in a way that's patterned and consistent. Like, God doesn't trick us and go, hey, I think I'm going to have the sun not come up tomorrow. He created a patterned and consistent world in which scientific research is actually possible because he sustains it in a consistent way. He is the bedrock of all reality. He sustains it, he governs it, and he brings it to its appointed purpose or end. That's the doctrine of providence. God is at work in everything that we see as in the natural world. He is involved in sustaining and governing and bringing it to its purpose. That is the topic of divine providence. And it has the capacity to revolutionize the way we see the world around us, our life, our past, our present. It really, in many respects, brings God to life everywhere. Now, what in the world does that have to do with Exodus 2? Well, glad you asked that question because I'm going to tell you. Um, Exodus 2 is one of those chapters where the providence of God, if you will, kind of comes to the forefront. The name God or the Lord 
is missing from the first 22 verses. Uh, it's mentioned in 23, which begins a whole new section. Should have been a chapter break there, but there wasn't. Um, but clearly, you see God's hands working in the details, in the formation, and then in the development of one of Israel's greatest deliverers, that is, the person of Moses. Now, if you weren't here last week, this is chapter 2, chapter 1, some very exciting things happened. God was multiplying the Jewish people in Egypt while they were in slavery, and um, their multiplication became a threat to the Pharaoh or the king of Egypt, and so he thought he, he would attempt three different ways to neutralize this threat. He tried putting them in slavery. When that didn't work, he tried conspiracy, uh, conspiring to commit murder of the Jewish baby boys. When that didn't work, he made a public declaration, kill all the Jewish baby boys. That was how it ended. But at each point, we saw in the chapter, at each point, the king trying to stop this multiplication, which was promised by God and part of God's plan, every time they just keep multiplying. That was a way of saying no one, not not the most powerful king on earth, can stop God from accomplishing or fulfilling his promises. That was chapter 1. Now, in chapter 2, their focus is on a very specific individual through whom God would um, deliver his people out of slavery. And this is where his story starts. Mind you, um, Moses' story in this chapter has kind of, if you will, two providential teachings. Um, how God worked to shape Moses. And they are teachings that I think if we can take the mind and heart um, they hold the potential of, of changing the way we see things. So this is how it starts. This is the, um, uh, Moses' um, birth and so forth. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she, when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took, took for him a basket made of bulrushes and, and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. Uh, she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister, this is Moses' older sister, Miriam, stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister, that is Miriam, Moses' sister, said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the, so the girl went and called the child's mother, that's Moses' mom, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. She's going to pay her. So the woman took the child and nursed him, and when the child grew older, that is probably when he was weaned, um, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So he was adopted. She named him Moses. It's an Egyptian name because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, details are fairly obvious, and yet there's, um, you look at each particular part, and you realize God's hand is, is, is governing all of this, right? So here you have this 
this, this, this uh, decree to, to slay the, the young Jewish baby boys. And, and, and Moses' mother realized she has one of those baby boys, and so she tries to hide him. But then after three months of age, he's probably too big and too loud. And so she just said, what am I going to do? So she creates a little ark, a little basket, puts him in the reeds. But she's, she's a mother who cares, so she points her daughter, hey, keep a watch over him. So there's Moses in a little basket in the reeds in the river. And then just so happens, just so happens... That, that of all people, it's not the governor's daughter. It's Pharaoh's daughter comes down to bathe just at that particular time, in that particular place. She looks over and she just happens to see, what is that off in the reeds? Hey, can you go check that out? Brings it over, opens it up. There's a crying baby Hebrew boy. It, sol- it solicits her maternal instinct. And immediately she feels passion and pity like almost every woman I know would. And she's like, wow, this is a baby. It just so happened. And it just so happens that the, Moses' big sister comes up and says, hey, you want a nurse? I know a few. And she's like, yeah, go find me a nurse. So she goes back to her mom. And I don't think daughter of Pharaoh had a clue that it was his actual mom. Best, best case scenario, here's Moses back in his mother's arms, and she gets paid to be his nurse. That's pretty awesome. Like, there is divine humor in this. There has to be divine humor in this. And then at the age that he's, you know... Doesn't need his mom anymore. She brings him back to, to Pharaoh's daughter, and she adopts him into the royal family of Pharaoh. Now, I, there is a strong sense of irony and poetic justice in this. In the previous chapter, Almighty Pharaoh was just, kill all the Jewish boys who were young, who were infants. You know, and we saw that he was powerless against God's promises. In chapter 2, we find he's powerless over his own daughter. And little does he know that he has a grandson who's Jewish and who's going to be the instrument by which Egypt falls. Like, there's a strong sense of, of, uh, of justice, right? It's like, God saying, so you, 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 you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna take down my people. Well, you know what? Your grandson's one of them. <coughs> and that kind of like the way that God works. He just confounds men, confounds powers. You know, that the evil powers thought, hey, man, we're going to bring down Jesus. And we're going to bring down the kingdom. So the devil thought in the death and crucifixion of Jesus, everything comes to life. Wow, that's how God works. But I want you to notice in this irony um, that God has worked in two providential ways in Moses' development. Providentially protecting and shaping or forming or preparing him to be what he called him to do. The protection part, and I think both of those ways in which God works providentially through ordinary natural things that he has his hands in um, is true of us too. That's part of what we learn in this first part of his story is providence protecting and preparing us for God's purposes in our lives. All of us have a purpose, and just so we're clear, the purpose God has for you is not to build your own private, personal, selfish kingdom. But God's purpose for you has something to do with his bringing 
Redemption to the nations, both being redeemed yourself, saved, forgiven, knowing God, being known by God, and then being used by him to spread it to others. That's, our purpose is somehow connected to that overarching impulse of the whole of the Bible. And God protects us in that process as he protected Moses. Like, it's, it's probably hard to put your head around because we feel like everything's accidental and coincidental in life. But I think the Bible would say absolutely not. Do you know that God every day, like, protects you for the sake of his purpose for you? Now, I, I don't know about you. I can look back at my, over my life, and I can see two times when I, I sh- probably could have died. I shouldn't say should have died, although theologically it's correct that I should have died too. But, um, you know, and I... And I Wildly driving my bike down a dirt embankment, the bottom of which was the stupidest idea ever, was a fast-moving um, highway. And I got to the bottom, and I stopped right before a car passed by. I thought, I just saw my life flash before my eyes. I was like 12. In that moment, if God had determined me to go a little farther, I would have died. The second time was I remember diving into the Sea of Galilee, and I dove hard. And my head, I dove head first, and my head hit a sandbar. And I know other people whose necks have shattered as a result of that. And I look back and I go, it could have been different. What, half a pound more pressure? Right? And I wouldn't have had use of my arms and legs. Now, I, I, I think God was protecting me for his purpose for me. Now, you'll say, well, what about Johnny Erickson? She didn't have that. Right? She dove in, she broke her neck, and she, 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 she has no use of, of any of her members, right? Well, God was accomplishing his purpose for her in the taking of her ability to maneuver for his purpose. And she has fulfilled that purpose of being an amplified testament to God's goodness in a way that she probably wouldn't have had she not had the accident. Point being, in both of those scenarios, God is providentially at work, you know, protecting so that his purpose for our lives is fulfilled. It's all around you, all the time, every day. And I'll tell you, it's, the, it's this truth of divine providence that enables me to get bored of, on board an airplane. You know, I don't like to do that. Or every time, my wife will tell you this is true, every time I drive across the bridge, you probably heard me say this like 10 times, um, drive across the bridge in San Francisco, every time I'm thinking, please, Lord, you operate every atom and subatomic molecule of the tectonic plates and this massive fault line over which I'm driving right now, I know... (laughs) You hold it all, that the 747, you are sustaining all of the molecules of all the metal and all the electronic stuff. Like, underneath it, it's all you. And if it's my time to die, well, then you're going to go like this, and that's okay. I'll trust that my purpose is done. I really don't want to die that way. But it's just knowing that he's, he's not distant or aloof. Oh, I forgot about that 747. That's not how it works. It's divine providence of believing God protects us. But then the other piece of this is the, the preparation I mean, as Moses, as a prince of Egypt, the grandson of Pharaoh, he would have had access to the best of a Jewish education, uh, Jewish, uh, Egyptian education and language training and arts and uh, architecture and religion. I mean, he was given a first-class education, which God in his providence used to shape him so that he would become 
one of the greatest, if not the greatest, biblical writer in the Old Testament. I had, even from a literary vantage point, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, five books of Moses, they are an ingenious masterpiece of literature. I could, it would equip him to, to think structurally, organizationally, and in terms of leadership. It's like in this work of providence, you said he, that God is forming him to be exactly what he was to be, a deliverer of Israel. Um, the book of Acts points that out. Chapter 7, verse 22, it says, And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Well, who do you think prepared that? Well, I did. So here you have, like, no mention of God or the Lord, but clearly his hands are involved in the formation of this young Jewish person named Moses, protecting him and shaping him to be a deliverer. Now, that, that's Moses writing much later about this account. That's how he views his past, as a work of the Lord. That is, he sees the hand of providence at work in his past. And I believe the Bible equips us also to see through the lens of providence our past. And instead of seeing it in a pessimistic, faithless, doubt-filled, self-absorbed way, to see the hand of God at work, and at very least to trust the hand of God was working in all the details which tends to go contrary to how many people think these days, in which, you know, we, this is kind of a joke, but, you know, we talk about the fact that we spend our adult life trying to undo and recover from our childhood, because many people go through hard things as ch- children, right? And I need therapy and need my pills now. I'm not, I'm not knocking par- therapy, I'm not knocking pharmaceuticals. I'm just saying that's kind of the mindset of looking back and all you see is the negative. As just seeing a mess, right? There are people who look back and they just see a mess. They're like, I can understand how God's in the clean, but how is God in the mess? But listen, this chapter and the chapter before, they're messy. I mean, we could almost reimagine Moses in the 21st century saying, man, I had it bad as a kid. You know what my mom did? She chucked me in the river at three, three months old. I don't know how I'm going to psychologically recover from, from, from being thrown in the river by my mother. And then my mom allowed me, when I was three or four years old, to be ripped from her arms and placed into this pagan woman's house where I was exposed to pagan Egyptian theology and religion, all the lies. Like, who would do that? I have a messy upbringing. And now I'm broken down. I am damaged goods, and I'm good for nothing trying to recover from the past. Have you ever heard a story like that before? Maybe sometimes, in all honesty, maybe that's how you see things. Listen, there's a different way of seeing the past, of recognizing that everything God providentially put you through, and sometimes those things are really painful, sometimes those things are a matter of injustice towards you, like Moses. And yet we have to trust that if God is attentive, alert, and good in all the details of life, then somehow, in some way, that we just have to, most of the time, release it in faith. Trust God, you were good in that moment, and someday I'm going to see it. And sometimes we're even given the capacity to look back and go, man, like I made this stupid mistake, 
that hurt that sent me this direction, which then you met me there, and like I wouldn't be, I wouldn't go back and do this and say mistake again, but I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for the way that you guided my, my life in the mess, right? That's, that is a completely different way of looking at the past through the lens of divine providence. God, God was in your past. The Bible insists on it. And if you are called according to his purpose and you love God, I guarantee you everything, it does everything, all things work together for not your temporal happiness, but for your eternal good. And that is something you have to take to the bank. Different way of seeing divine providence. So that's kind of lesson number one, providence. There's only two, is this is how God shaped and formed Moses. This is about what happened to Moses. Beginning in verse 11, we find out what Moses does. If the first 10 verses were take, or took place in Egypt, then the verses that follow move him to a place called Midian. And there is a decisive, a crucial event that happens in Moses' life that is going to send him into a 40-year exile. So here is the second part of the story. One day, when Moses had grown up, and Acts 7.23 tells us he was about 40 years of age at this point. So he'd been in Egypt as a prince for a while. And I want you to notice, as I read, he deals with three conflicts. He, he already senses the desire and the drive to deliver tries to deliver a Jewish man from an Egyptian, uh, a Jewish man from another Jewish man that he's having a quarrel with, and a group of of seven women um, from a group of angry shepherds. Anyway, just keep your eyes out for it. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people, his people, he's already identifying himself as a Jewish person, not as as an Egyptian, Looked on the other burdens, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, that was conflict number one, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? So there's two Jewish people in a fight. He answered, that is the man in the wrong, who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you, did the, as you killed the Egyptian? And then it says, then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So he's forced to flee, and this is a description of what takes place there for roughly 40 years. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and... <sighs> Seven daughters, man. I can't imagine that. I love my daughter with my whole heart, and she's amazing. But, man, I don't have a heart big enough for seven of them. There's just no way. The shepherds came and drove these daughters away, but Moses stood up and saved the day and, you know, watered their flock. And when they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? And, and they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered our flock. And he said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. There is a, 
a critical, crucial moment that changes, from our perspective, changes Moses' life. In the beginning verses of what I just read, Moses was 40. And you know what? I just like to think that people in their 40s are still strong, right? 40 is a new 20. Right? 50 is a new 30 and stuff like that. Well, he's 40. And he comes upon this scene where an Egyptian is beating one of his kinsmen. And he has a sense of authority and a sense of power. He's been a prince. He's educated. He knows what it is to command. And so in that moment, he sees an injustice And with his sense of power and strength and his sense of authority, he takes matters into his own hands. And notice the text was very careful in saying he looked this way, that way. Like, he's waiting until nobody else is around. He didn't intervene in the middle of the conflict. He waited until the conflict was over and no one was looking. He looked this way, that way, and he rose up in his own strength and sense of power and authority, and he slew the Egyptian. Now, all of that description, of it means it was a premeditated act of murder. As I said, when Moses wrote this account of chapter 2, he wrote it from a later position in life, and there's no way he couldn't have concluded that this was a violation of one of the Ten Commandments to murder that it was a violation of trusting vengeance to God and not taking it out yourself. So here you have Moses in his 40s or 40, rising up in his own strength to deliver, in his own way, breaking moral law. So I think what you have here is a massive moral failure. Massive moral failure that's going to send him from being a prince to being a shepherd of stupid sheep for 40 more years. For 40 more years. Moses was was a deliverer, but he was a sinful deliverer, right? I think about all of the Old Testament or any of the Old Testament deliverers and you compare them to Christ, you realize there is a vast disparity. There are similarities, but vast disparities that make Christ shine above all else. That Moses, in an attempt to deliver in his own strength, rose up in privacy, and he slew a man. And Jesus, in an act of deliverance, in humility and trust, raised himself up. And instead of slaying his enemy, he gave his life for his enemy, which is the only way that God can work out everything for the good of his people because our sins were paid for, including Moses, Abraham, all of them. Now the question is, where was providence here? If God's involved in everything, baskets and raising up and Delivering and protecting and preparing? Where where, where is he in this moment? And the answer is, he was still there. Is that God's providence, and this is this is the one I said you need to be we need to be careful with. Dance on the edge of a razor blade. That God in his providence uses 
moral failure of his people to humble us and reestablish our sense of strength on his power, not our own. Right? Moses experienced a massive moral failure that led to him being given a timeout, so to speak, for 40 years. So listen to this, all right? By the time God calls Moses to go down and be the great deliverer, the man is 80 years old. Couldn't you send me when I was 40 and I was strapping? (laughs) You're going to be rickety and you're going to be 80. You're not going to be able to wield a sword or throw a javelin. You can't do any of that. You know why? Because when, when you deliver my people, I want people to know that it was me and not you. See? So I am going to choose your word. I am going to plan or I am going to allow you to experience a massive failure so that it's not until you're in a weakened state that I'm going to call you. And the sense of it is that he did feel that his grace had its work and humbled him. Because when God finally comes to him, one of the first, the first questions he, he asks the Lord is like, like, who am I? I was once up there. Now I've been, I'm an old man. I've been in this shepherding business for 40 years. Who am I? Church, that is, that is one of the redemptive good news aspects of how God can use even moral failure in a person's life. And if you look back to all of the men and women of God, you realize that a lot of them needed this humbling. They needed to be shown that the strength was not in themselves, that they too were blatant sinners. Moses, confronted by his own sin and his own arrogance. You know, David, the mighty David, you know, the whole Bathsheba affair and adultery and murder, I think it was to show him his deepest lesson of life was to know that he wasn't deserving, but God's steadfast love and mercy could cover even that. Or Peter, upon whom the church has built the rock, right? St. Peter, that he said, I'm going to stand by you and I'll die with you. And what does he do? He denies the Lord. What, what did he learn in that moment? Well, he learned that, I cannot, of my own strength, in my own power, in my own arrogance, remain true to you. Period. Paul, right? I'm going to be on God's side. I'm taking down this church. And oh my goodness, I was fighting on the wrong side. And he goes blind and he has to be led around by his hands. Why would God, in his providence, put Paul in a place of antagonism? Except that he's the apostle of grace who knew more than anyone, I am the chief of sinners. And as the chief of sinners, I learned that Christ's grace is more than sufficient for me. See? So even in our lives, and every one of us has a degree of moral failure. Some are bigger, more public than others. Um... Even that has for the Christian a a redemptive purpose. To teach us, to shape us, to mold us. So that we can be used. So that we actually believe what we're talking about. Right? I mean, how do we discover grace? Well, realizing that you're actually a real, real sinner. Not just a pretend one, but a real one. 
and realize how God, good God is. And then you actually have something to share. Now, again, this is slippery slope because I could hear somebody going, well, all right then. Like if God works out really good things for me through my moral failures, well, why not do a little more moral failure so I get more good? You see? Let us just sin that grace may abound. And, and it doesn't work that way. And, and, and if that is the attitude, I dare say the person is not a believer or Christian or have a spirit at all. I mean, the heart that would say that is a heart that would trample the cross and the blood of Christ every day. And that's not, that's not where it comes from. But at the same time, you know, to recognize that God still has purpose in those things. And, 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 and instead of living in a pile of, you know, despondence, carrying around chains of, of past failure, you know, God wants you to live in the freedom of one, knowing your sin has already been forgiven in Christ, but also recognizing this is like the second lesson to help you recover and heal is to recognize, while I deserved horrible things for what I did, I received grace from the Lord. And to allow yourself the lens of the Bible to see that even in those things, God was doing something good. You, you have that lens? There's different people with different pasts in here, some known, some unknown. Now, how do you view those things, especially your moral failures? Are you self-absorbed? Are you depressed? Do you beat yourself up at night? Do you wake up in the middle of the, of the night and, and think, how, how could I ever do that? Or do you say, you know what? God has given me by, by his grace and through the scripture, he's given another, me another way of seeing things. He's given me a, a, a lens to understand that I'm forgiven fully and completely in Christ Jesus. I'm a new creature. But at the same time, I can also look back and see that, man, that had purpose in my life. And I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for that thing. If I could go back, I'd do it differently. But it's integral to who I've become. That lens, church, of seeing life through the lens of divine providence, that God is is integrated. He is the integrative, interpretive center of all of life, that he is always at work always at work, from growing tomato plants to shaping your life, to your experiences, to your skills, even your failures. That's, that's how good he is. That's how he, in his mystery of wisdom, can bring good out of evil and bring wonders out of failure and to bring grace even out of sin, right? That's, an, that's a completely different lens, but church, I know that it frees people. One of my I won't say one of my closest friends, but a very good friend. You know, dragging around his stuff from the past. Moral failure after moral failure, and he was living in bondage to them. Came to this realization that, wow, like I don't have to view it that way anymore. And today he serves as a pastor of a church because he was freed by this truth. So I, I commend it to you. Like this is something not just to think about, but ask the Lord, let me view all of life this way, especially my past, and experience um, the freedom of knowing that God had good things, even when things were dark. I hope that you'll take this truth, think about it, maybe you need to digest it a little bit, um, but more importantly, I hope you'll, upon digestion, believe it, and it'll change your perspective on your life. Father, thank you for um, being good to us. Thank you for 
the fact that there's no place in all of the universe, there is no time, no sliver of space that you do not operate or utilize, that you are attentive to the smallest details of life. Father, I pray that for those in this room who may have moral failure in their background, or maybe it's right now, I, I pray that you would work in them to own up to it, to take responsibility for it, to repent of it, make restitution for it. Because this truth does not obviate or sideline the need for repentance from sin. But it does give us the capacity, Lord, to see that even in the messiness of life, in the messiness of our choices, you still and always will be good. In Christ's name I pray.